service. You're listening to Badlands. To hear all episodes of Badlands right now, go listen on Amazon Music or say, Alexa, play the Badlands podcast. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Danny Trejo are insane. He holds the record for most on-screen deaths by an actor. His go-to role is the bad guy, the baddest guy, the guy you do not fuck with. And for the first 25 years of his life, he was that guy in real life. He bit off a piece of someone's face. He robbed a liquor store with a grenade. He did time in just about every hardcore prison in California including Folsom in San Quentin. On the inside, he ran protection rackets, he ran the gym, he ran drugs, and he did drugs. Three to four grams of heroin a day. After he bottomed out, naked and afraid, in the hole at Soldad State Prison, he made a pledge to stop striking fear in the hearts of others and instead dedicate his life to helping others conquer their own fears. And because art imitates life and life is often batshit crazy, Danny Trejo eventually found himself making great films. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't a clip from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Henry Burr performing Goodnight Everybody in 1912. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to a clip from Gene Sachs' The Odd Couple. And why would I play you that specific slice of bachelor pad cheese could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on May 5th, 1968. And that was the day that Danny Trejo was accused of throwing a rock at a Soledad State prison guard during a riot on Cinco de Mayo. An offense that came with the most extreme punishment imaginable, the gas chamber. On this episode, grenades, undercover feds, Hardcore Prisons, and Danny Trejo. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, Season 5, Hollywoodland. Danny Trejo saw fear in the man's face. Reading fear was one of his greatest gifts. Fear was everywhere. You just had to know how to spot it, manipulate it, put it to work for you. One man's distress is another man's opportunity. And sometimes you have to manufacture it. Make yourself the thing a man fears more than anything. You walk into a liquor store off Coanga Boulevard with a grenade in your hand, one finger wrapped around the pin, your friend standing behind you, cocking his shotgun for maximum effect. That's going to make the man behind the counter fear for his life. He might even piss himself. And he'll definitely do whatever the fuck you tell him to. Danny Trejo knew it would work. Just like it worked every other time. At restaurants and retail stores. 
A liquor store was just a variation on a theme. It had money, and Danny wanted that money. It had an employee behind the counter who would cower at the sight of Danny and his friend, strung out on junk, ready to kill, equally ready to die. He was holding a fucking grenade in his hand. He'd level the whole block if he had to. The liquor store employee knew this, and so he did as he was told. He opened the register and handed over every last dollar. Danny Trejo knew fear from a very young age. Growing up in Pacoima, an LA neighborhood in the San Fernando Valley, which at the time had a low medium income and a high crime rate. The son of Azutsu Pachuco, Danny spoke Spanish, English, and fear. Like when he was laid out on the ground, pretending to be unconscious after his father's fist had put him there. Or when his father, angry and drunk, locked him up in the car on a hundred degree day. The greatest fear was reserved for grandpa. Grandpa would threaten your life and then give you a beating so bad he'd welcome death as a means of escape. But there was another way to escape, and Uncle Gilbert had the map. Or rather, he had a syringe and a belt. Gilbert was only six years older than Danny, who was 12 at the time. Danny caught Gilbert shooting up after Gilbert returned from a stint in county lockup. He saw how good it made Gilbert feel, the needle piercing the skin, the glass tube cloudy with blood. It took Gilbert somewhere. His body was still there, but his mind was gone, away from it all. The violence, the fear. Danny wanted to go to that same place. He told Gilbert he'd squeal if he didn't tie him off too. Heroin made Danny feel warm and safe. It also made him want to do more heroin, and to do more heroin, Danny and Gilbert needed cash. They stole to support their habit. They sold balloons of heroin down in Sun Valley Park. But Gilbert wasn't just Danny's gateway into hard drugs. Gilbert taught Danny how to survive and thrive. First, you have to conquer your fears. You become fear. You get busted, no importa. They put you in a cell for juvie, no se preoccupe. You no puto. You come out harder than you were when you went in. You find the other Mexicans on the inside. A couple of guys that you know of your back no matter what. You need them now, more importantly, You'll need them again down the line. Don't beat on someone smaller than you. Don't humiliate. Fuck bullies. Sleep with one eye open. Be ready to pounce if pounced on. And when someone does pounce, when some vato comes up real close with his chest puffed out and a challenge on his tongue, when he tells you there's no need to take it outside because it's going down right there, right now, you look him straight in the eye and you say, fuck your mother, Holmes. No one expects that. Even the biggest, baddest motherfuckers thrown off when you fail to play the operatic game of escalating threats like all the other assholes. Tells them, I am not fucking around. I don't play by your rules. I will fuck your mother. But first, I'll break every bone in your fucking body. And make no mistake, I will do what I need to do to get what I want. Money, drugs, respect. Gilbert's advice made Danny tough and it helped him survive his teenage years. He felt awkward as the only Mexican kid at North Hollywood High, but the white kid who dared challenge him felt something worse. Pain, searing, debilitating pain. He felt it where part of his face used to be. Danny spat the bloody hunk of flesh on the pavement after tearing it out with his teeth. And that would make any of those motherfuckers think twice before fucking with Danny Trejo again. But that same advice also put Danny in some of the same places Uncle Gilbert had been. Juvenile detention centers, county jail. At an age when other kids were graduating high school, 
Danny was starting a three-year term at a different kind of school, youth training school, a prison in Chino, where he was sent for dealing weed. When he was released on parole in 1965 at the age of 21, Danny Trejo tried to fly straight, but the life he had left was still there waiting for him. It found him just as soon as he got out. It pulled up alongside him while he was walking down the street. It pulled up slick in a red and white 1959 Chevy Impala. His friend, Dennis, behind the wheel. Dennis wasn't a Mexican. He was a white kid, a few years younger, but he was one of the guys Danny could trust. One of the guys Gilbert had taught him to seek out, the guy who had his back. In the Impala's trunk were two sawed-off shotguns, a machine gun, and a hand grenade. Two revolvers in the back seat. Dennis was gonna bring them to Richard Berry. Not the same Richard Berry who wrote Louie Louie, but the Valley's preeminent heroin dealer. Trade guns for dope. Danny couldn't resist. He got in the car. Barry only bought some of the guns, so Danny and Dennis took the remaining firepower along with the smack they scored in the deal to a cheap motel. For over a month, they operated out of motel rooms, dealing, getting high, holding up liquor stores with that hand grenade. And the deals got bigger. Dennis met some guy who wanted to buy four ounces of pure heroin at 1,500 an ounce. Jesus Christ, who says crime doesn't pay? But there was a problem. They didn't have it. The dope. They dealt it or shot it all. So they filled up four balloons with sugar and lactose powder and took it with them to the meeting place. And maybe it was the fake drugs in the balloons, but something didn't feel right. Danny started to feel something that he hadn't felt in a long time. Something he had suppressed for years. Fear. Danny and Dennis slid into the back seat of the car. It was dark. Danny couldn't make out the faces of the men in the front seats. The engine was idling. And the smell of exhaust, sweet and dirty. The driver asked if they had the drugs. Danny couldn't bring himself to answer. The whole thing stank. The car, the exhaust, this fucking deal. Danny's stomach lurched. He was gonna be sick. Dennis handed over the balloons filled with sugar and lactose powder. The driver slowly turned around and held a stack of bills in Danny's face. Danny got a look at him and doubled down on the churning sensation in his gut. This guy didn't do dope. This guy made a living out of fucking over people like Danny and Dennis, the guys who didn't fly straight. That driver was a fucking narc. Take the money. Danny just stared at it. The bills, six grand waving around in his face. Take it, take the money. Danny didn't move. He didn't know what to do. He knew he was fucked, but maybe he'd be less fucked if he didn't actually touch the money. The driver got impatient. Take the fucking money, man. And then Dennis got impatient. He reached forward and grabbed the cash, and then they split. Danny told Dennis his suspicions. They just sold drugs to federal agents. He couldn't explain how he knew. Dennis told him to calm down. It was all good. The only thing they had to worry about was whatever payback awaited them for selling fake heroin. Danny did not agree. He took his half of the payday and brought it to a waitress he knew at a restaurant that held a lot of money in its safe. He had her swap out his three grand for three grand from the safe. And then he went back to the motel where he and Dennis were staying. Dennis wasn't there. Danny waited. Dennis finally pulled up in that red and white Impala. He barely opened the driver's side door when a fleet of cars roared into the motel parking lot. Brakes squealed, doors flung open, badges, guns, federal agents. Danny and Dennis were fucked. Dennis had never been to a prison before. But for Danny Trejo, this was a major violation of his parole, which meant he wasn't going back to youth training school. He was headed straight to the arena, the big house. You think you know fear? You don't know shit until you step foot inside San Quentin.
By the time Danny Trejo got to San Quentin State Prison at just 21 years old, he'd already done time at prisons and correctional facilities in Chino, Vacaville, Tracy, Jamestown, Canocti, and Megalia. But San Quentin was different. You make it there and you know you fucked up real good, I say. San Quentin was not for the faint of heart. Built by the bare hands of condemned men just two years after the Golden State was admitted to the Union, and for over a hundred years, it continued to siphon the blood, sweat, and tears of the condemned. Some of the most violent, deplorable men in the United States, serial killers, child killers, men with unrelenting compulsions to kill, men who get off on watching the life drain from another man's eyes. Visitors to San Quentin are required to sign a waiver. The prison does not negotiate over hostages. If an inmate gets you while you're on the inside, you're on your own. Just like everyone else in that godforsaken fuckhole, even the ghosts were on their own. You could hear them at night, moaning and howling alongside the screams of the living. Lost souls who were once made of human flesh. The ones who were shanked, choked out, hanged. The ones who bled out on a cold cement floor. There was only one legal way to die inside San Quentin, and the whole prison knew when it was happening. There, past the yard, on the fourth floor of the North Block, was Condemned Men's Row, AKA Death Row the only death row for male inmates in the entire state of California. It was impossible to forget where death row was at Quentin. A green light shone at the top of a metal chimney directly above. Green was good, but when the light turned red, that only meant one thing. Someone was being gassed. A gas chamber execution is excruciating. You're strapped to a chair, which is sealed inside an airtight chamber. When the hydrogen cyanide gas is released, they tell you to breathe it in to make it go quicker. But you hold your breath, you fight it, you struggle. Soon, you can't hold it any longer. So you gulp down the poison air. Your eyes pop out of your head. Your skin goes purple. Drool runs down your chin. It takes most men more than 10 minutes to die. And just the thought of death by cyanide gas was enough to strike fear into even the hardest of hardened criminals. But Danny Trejo, had other things to worry about inside San Quentin, like the note that was passed into his cell on his first night. It was from an old friend, also an inmate, warning Danny that some vato he had screwed over on the outside was telling everyone that he was a cheat. Danny had to be ready for anything. And he couldn't forget the reason he was at San Quentin in the first place. His friend Dennis was to blame. Danny thought he could trust him, that Dennis had his back. But when the going got tough and the shit hit the fan, Dennis flipped, sold Danny out. Dennis had never experienced prison before. He was a pretty white boy, and pretty white boys had one role on the inside. Was Dennis scared? You better fucking believe it. The feds had nothing on Danny. He swapped out his half of the money from the drug deal. He never actually touched anything when the deal went down in that car. And since the balloons were filled not with heroin, but with sugar and lactose powder, there were no drug charges to be made. The feds had no choice but to turn him over to the cops. Dennis, on the other hand, had a choice. If he pled guilty, he'd get 60 days in a dark cell. But if he testified that he witnessed Danny sell smack to an undercover officer, his future would look a lot brighter. Besides, the cops didn't want Dennis. They wanted the repeat offender, the parole violator. They wanted Danny Trejo. And they got Danny Trejo. Thanks in no small part to his snitch partner. He'd been set up, double-crossed, left for dead. But they fucked with the wrong Mexican. Danny got to work inside San Quentin. He didn't have time to dwell on how he'd gotten there. He didn't have the luxury to be afraid. 
He remembered the advice of his uncle Gilbert. He became fear. He sought out a few close confidants, guys he could call Carnal, Hermano. Then the rest of the general population flinched when he walked by. He trained in the gym and showed off his three-punch combo in the ring. He fashioned shanks out of metal pieces from his bunk. He got a requisite prison tattoo. Not just any tattoo. He had a long time reuse a guitar string and a melted-down toothbrush to paint the giant Chara, a Mexican woman who fought alongside Pancho Villa on his chest. He ran protection rackets. He collected debts for Richard Berry, the heroin dealer from the valley that traded him dope for guns. Collecting debts went like this. Find the guy that owes the money to Richard Berry. Walk up to the guy that owes the money to Richard Berry. Appreciate the fact that this guy is twice the size of you. Try not to let it bother you. Speak clearly and concisely. And when this big guy in debt asks you what the fuck you want, you tell him, I want you to write your family and tell them if they don't send the money you owe by Tuesday, you're going to die. The deal with Richard Berry was mutually beneficial. Berry got his money, or even better, contraband, like cartons of cigarettes sold for an even greater profit. And Danny got paid in heroin. Being in prison hadn't curbed his habit. If anything, it escalated it. The only thing more surprising than how much Danny was using at the time was the fact that he could be so high and yet remain a major player in San Quentin's ecosystem. Prison authorities thought he was too good of a player. They classified him as a quote-unquote institutional convenience. In other words, do whatever you want with this fucking guy. You don't want him there? Send him somewhere else. Wherever's convenient for everyone except Danny Trejo. He was making too many waves. He was way too organized. Which is how Danny Trejo found himself an inmate at Folsom Prison, where he was taken directly to the hole. The pit at Building 5 was, as Johnny Cash would later sing at his famous Folsom Prison concert, dark as a dungeon. Six by 10 cell, iron door, heavy as shit. You lose track in a place like that. It wasn't long before his institutional convenience designation once again got him moved out of Folsom and into the so-called correctional training facility, AKA Soledad State Prison in Monterey County. In Soledad, Danny got his groove back. He ran a new protection racket. He ran the gym, he ran drugs, smack, speed, cigarettes, whatever you wanted. You want some woman's panties, lipstick? It's cool, Holmes. If that's your thing, we can make it happen. Danny kept the business of prison rolling while he rolled deeper into his own addictions. Three to four grams of heroin a day, weed, pills, whiskey, pruno, that's prison wine. Raisins, oranges, table sugar, and yeast twisted tight in garbage bags, insulated in t-shirts, and fermented on heating vents. On May 5th, 1968, Cinco de Mayo, Danny had a head full of all of the above while he observed a bizarre scene. A junior college baseball team playing a pickup game with a group of soldat inmates. He felt like shit, and the cocktail of substances was sloshing around inside his head like a batch of pruno gurgling on a tepid radiator. He sat on the bleachers along the third baseline out in the yard with his friend Ray and watched the strange game unfold. These college kids were way out of their element. They looked terrified just to be there. Ray kept heckling the third baseman, some pimply-faced kid in his late teens smacking on a wad of gum like a cow chewing its cud. Ray wanted a stick of gum. He yelled at the kid, and the kid didn't respond. Danny told him to chill out, and that just made Ray want to heckle more. Fuck you, bitch, give me some gum. The third baseman finally responded. He said they really weren't supposed to interact with the inmates. No offense. The fuck he say? No offense? That got to Ray. Danny could see it in his eyes. Fucked him right up. Like they were second-class citizens. 
Ray wasn't going to take that shit sitting down. Within seconds, he was up, leapt right out of the bleachers and practically sprinted to the field, straight to third base, and he punched that intellectual cabron right in the mug. The bleachers cleared. Bodies scattered throughout the yard, thousands of bodies. The college kids were swinging baseball bats at anyone that got close. But inmates weren't just going after college kids. Inmates were going after inmates. Long-standing grudges were being settled. Mexican gangs went after black gangs. Black gangs targeted the Aryans. Danny was just trying to survive. He threw punches at anyone and everyone. His boxing training kicked in. He dodged fists. He threw monster hooks. He grabbed something off the ground, a rock or a piece of concrete. He didn't stop to look. He just knew he might need it. And according to some on duty that day, he used it. When the riot was finally subdued, one of the guards blamed Danny for throwing the rock that hit him in the head. Attacking a guard was a capital offense which meant that it was only a matter of time before Danny would be the one strapped to the chair inside that sealed chamber back at San Quentin. He would breathe in the cyanide gas. The light on top of the chimney above death row, just beyond the yard, it would change over from green to red. And everyone there would know, Danny Trejo was a dead man. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. There was shit smeared all over the wall, and not just haphazardly smeared. It spelled out two words, fuck God. No one would be surprised to learn that the hole in Soledad was a godless place. It was cramped, hot, a pit of despair, self-loathing, and human filth. It was hell. Danny Trejo didn't know what was worse. Being stuck in solitary alone, buck naked, with nothing but shit on the walls for company, or not knowing what was going to happen when he got out. Would they prove that he had thrown the rock that hit a guard in the head? He wasn't denying that he had thrown a rock, but he didn't deliberately throw one at a guard. Even in the heat of the moment, even in the middle of a prison riot with a thousand other men, all of them raging, raring to draw blood and drop bodies. Even then, he wouldn't do something that fucking stupid, but who was he? An inmate, an institutional convenience. They could do with him what they wanted. Fuck was over. Life as he knew it was over. Would they take him right back to San Quentin or would he be on death row for long? He shuddered at the thought. He also shuddered because he was being forced to abandon his diet. That steady diet of heroin, pills, weed, whiskey, and pruno that had powered him through his short life thus far. Cold turkey was bad enough in the best of conditions. Here, it sucked hard. Here, fear lurked in every corner. Fear was tucked inside every shadow. He couldn't avoid it forever. It would either defeat him or he would defeat it. His mind raced. He thought back to the hole in Folsom where he passed the time doing push-ups and sit-ups. He kept his body sharp, kept his mind sharper. He played out movies in his head. The Wizard of Oz, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Movies of his youth. They took him back, carried him away. Helped him escape, at least in his mind. Not unlike heroin, but heroin took him to all the wrong places. Took him to San Quentin, to Folsom, to Soledad. Took him to the hole. Heroin wasn't helping, and Danny Trejo needed help. He emerged from the hole three months later. For the first time in over a decade, he was sober. He couldn't stay sober and keep dealing. Only a hypocrite would do that. So he stopped slinging dope, but he kept protecting. He joined the prison's 12-step program, 
He looked out for the people consumed by fear, the ones who needed help as badly as he needed it in solitary. He helped them get clean. And these are hardened criminals we're talking about. All because they thought shit if a badass Vado like Danny Trejo can do it. Why can't I? Unlikely, sure, impossible. Nah, anything was possible. Even the unlikeliest things, especially the unlikeliest things. Like when that guard was pressed to testify on exactly what happened at the Cinco de Mayo riot. And he admitted that he really couldn't remember who it was that threw the rock. When fellow inmates, eyewitnesses, asked who did it, and they responded, eh, it was Mickey Mouse. They couldn't even track down the third baseman, the one Ray clocked. There wasn't enough evidence. After three months in the hole, drastically turning his life around, Danny Trejo was rewarded with absolution. And then, on August 23rd, 1969, almost one year after his release from the hole, the next unlikely thing happened. Danny Trejo was released from prison. He was a free man. He was a new man. But the most unlikely thing of all was yet to come. Danny Trejo heard the fear in the voice on the other end of the phone. The kid was 17, maybe 18. 108 days clean, but he felt like getting loaded. There was cocaine all over the place at his job. He didn't think he would make it through the night without using. Danny was used to this kind of call. He fielded them day and night. He was always on. Ever since his release from prison, he walked a straight line and never looked back. He even forgave his old friend Dennis for throwing him under the bus and landing him in San Quentin and he helped himself by helping others. He opened treatment centers and sober living houses throughout LA, like the ongoing Unity and Recovery House, or Our House in Koreatown. Guys just out of the pen were sent his way by Uncle Gilbert, who was back in Folsom doing time yet again. Danny vowed to never return. Too many people relied on him now. Like this kid on the phone, Danny told him to come on over to the house. Carson would be on soon. The kid couldn't, he had to stay at work, and Danny told him to hang tight. He was on his way. Danny didn't know what the kid did for work, but when he arrived at the address, it wasn't what he expected. Lights, cameras, action. It was a film set. There were people everywhere, running the equipment, telling the actors what to do, managing crowd control. So many people, but Danny couldn't find the kid. Some important looking guy walked up to Danny, wanted to know what he was doing. Looking for a friend, Danny replied, but I think I'm too late. The man introduced himself. He was the assistant director. The movie was called Runaway Train. He asked Danny if he had any interest in being an extra. It was for a prison scene. Can you play a convict? He asked. Hold up. He was sitting there thinking, no way, man. No way, this is how it happened. Danny Trejo, clean and sober and doing God's work, wanders onto a movie set and is asked if he can play a convict. But I swear that's what actually happened. And you want to know what's even crazier? Danny says, uh, yeah, I can play a convict. Does the Pope wear a funny hat? and he goes to change into his prison blues for the scene. He takes his shirt off, and that big-ass tattoo of the chara is there for all to see. And suddenly, this old white guy from across the room goes, Danny? Danny Trejo? Turns out the guy who wrote the screenplay for the movie, Eddie Bunker, a career criminal, was an inmate at San Quentin when Danny was boxing there. Small fucking world, man. From there, Danny kept scoring small roles. First as an extra, but by 1987's Penitentiary 3, 
he was playing characters with names that appeared in the credits. He always played the bad guy, the baddest guy, the guy you just do not fuck with. The bad guy in movies with names like Death Wish 4, Bulletproof, Lock Up, Maniac Cop 2, and Marked for Death. His face struck fear in the hearts of the good guys. That long black ponytail, the sinister mustache, and those tattoos. The lines on his weathered face that told a story you wouldn't fucking believe. A journalist once asked him, you always play the Mexican with tattoos. Are you afraid of getting typecast? And Danny responded, I am the Mexican with tattoos. Danny graduated to bigger and better films with directors including Michael Mann, Robert Rodriguez, and Quentin Tarantino. He poked fun at his badass rep in the Spy Kids series. In 2010, he finally graduated from supporting character to badass vengeful lead in the exploitation B-movie Machete. Over the years, he managed to get himself killed 65 times, the most on-screen deaths by any actor. Turns out, this one-time cold-blooded criminal would have killed to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcasts because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.